Good morning. I want to talk with you this morning simply about an amazing Savior. I want to talk about an amazing Savior. Jesus is greatly and amazingly different, isn't He? Yes, critics to the Christian faith, they can cry hypocrisy and highlight hypocrisy at any given moment. Church scandals can be exposed and highlighted and exaggerated. Christians can be thrown into the category of the weak-minded and the emotionally needy. But none of that changes the reality that Jesus, the person, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior is greatly and amazingly different. One of the factors that contributed to, to C.S. Lewis's conversion to Christianity was upon the discovery that Jesus is greatly and amazingly different in many ways, one of which to him was the way that God pursued him. He referred to that time as God closing in on him. He referred to God's steady and unrelenting approach to him. Author Andrea Monda, who wrote of Lewis's conversion, states that he even created the character Aslan in relation to his perspective of God, because to C.S. Lewis, God was as a lion on the hunt for men, and he hunted men down only to embrace them. Yes, amazingly different indeed. Maybe that's what we're being exposed to in chapter 7 of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Maybe Lewis is really revisiting that sense of joy or that sense of awe or that sense of wonder, that sense of amazement, that sense of excitement. Maybe he's revisiting that as we hear from the Pavinci children as they hear the name of Aslan for the very first time. It reads like this. The beaver says, they say Aslan is on the move, perhaps has already landed. And now, Lewis says, a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. Do you recall that experience when the truth of Christ was validated 
in your life. When you came to the realization at that moment in time, when Christ revealed Himself to you, that He was, He is indeed amazingly different. Listen, our prayer and our purpose is very simple this morning. That we would rekindle just a small portion of the amazement that accompanies so great a salvation as the one that we have. And I assure you that we will be the better for it. And I promise you, it is infectious and it is contagious. That's what we're going to read about this morning as we open our Bibles to John chapter 4. An amazing Savior indeed. John chapter 4, verse 43 through 54. After the two days he departed for Galilee, that would be the two days he spent in Samaria upon their request. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. Let's stop there for a moment. Jesus is testifying that a prophet is not welcome in his own hometown. Then the Galileans welcome him. Or Jesus states that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Then the Galileans welcome him. Now that lays a very relevant foundation because we know on the foundation that they are welcoming him. They're not welcoming him as the Savior of the world as the Samaritans had previously confessed. They're welcoming Him as a miracle worker. They're not welcoming Him as a Savior to confront their sin. They're welcoming Him as a miracle worker to fix their problems. Verse 46. So He came again to Cana in Galilee, where He had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man, who I'm sure heard of Jesus turning water to wine, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you, that's plural, he's not just speaking to the official, he's speaking to every hearer that's present. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go. Your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live, 
and he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Let's pray. Let's pray over this passage. Let's pray over this morning. Father, we we are in need this morning, God. We're in need of living water. We're in need of spiritual food. And has been, as it has been stated this morning during our worship time, Father, we desire and so need to be taken aback again by an amazing Savior. Father, wake our wake our emotions, wake our experiences, wake us from any slumber, God, that we may be in that would cause us to be too familiar with You. So, Father, our request this morning is life. We've just witnessed You giving living, living water to a dead soul. God, do that in our hearts. Awaken our spirits. Awaken our minds. And give us all living water. Give us life this morning. We would ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. There's three principles, of course, that I want to pull from this passage. The first being man's problem. And as we talk about man's problem, there's going to be two thoughts under that idea. We're going to talk about man's problem, and we're going to talk about a spiritual problem. Then we're going to talk about a relational pattern. And that's going to be issued as somewhat of a warning to us, something that we need to be on guard of. Man's problem, Christ's passion, and then thirdly, Christ's purpose. Let's look at man's problem. Let's start in verse 46 and read through to 48. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Emphasis mine. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Belief is not a purpose in the Gospel of John. Belief is the purpose of the Gospel of John. As a matter of fact, the core of this whole Gospel is found in John 20, verses 30-31 that we've often read, which states, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. The backbone of the Gospel of John or the skeleton of the backbone of John is found in a series of signs. There are seven of them to be exact. 
And the purpose of these signs, they are designed to point us beyond the miracle itself. They're designed to allow us to look beyond the curtain and realize the truth that exists about us that's found in the sign, that's found in the miracle. And the greatness of a sign, the greatness of the sign, the pinnacle of any sign that we read in the Gospel of John is always going to be found in the reality of an amazingly different Savior who offers a uniquely glorious salvation. Therefore, John wants us to know something in relation to this sign. He wants us to know first that our greatest problem is a spiritual problem. Our greatest problem is a spiritual problem. Now, I would think that probably all of us here would agree with that statement. We probably would all agree that our greatest problem is a spiritual problem. But how intentional we are in relation to keeping that truth before us will determine if we view Christ as the remarkable, amazing, astonishing Savior of our very lives, or whether or not He is simply a frequent religious figure. Because the reality is this, the man who forgets that his greatest problem is a spiritual problem, is a man who loosens his grip on the reality of sin in his life. The man who forgets that his greatest problem is a spiritual problem is a man who loses his grip on the need to have a daily, astonishing, astounding Savior. We cannot forget that our greatest problem is indeed a spiritual problem. So this official comes to Christ with a problem. John has established this problem as a sign among many signs so that we'll note that this is not just the official's problem. This is our problem as well. This isn't just a problem that revolves around an official's son. This is a problem that revolves around and defines all of humanity that is born of a woman and all of humanity that dwells among men. This is a problem of sickness. This is a problem of serious sickness. Listen, beloved, we are oh so seriously sick. We're oh so sick. I, you, we were born so seriously sick. Our children are born so seriously sick. Our grandchildren are born, will be born so seriously sick. Our spouse, our future spouses, young women, young men, they are born so seriously sick, and unless there's an intervention, they remain seriously sick at this very moment. And in order to know how serious this sickness is, John causes us to note through the official son 
that it is a sickness to the point of death. And the man that forgets that truth is a man who forgets his need to have an astounding Savior in his life, an amazing Savior in his life, constantly. The official son is standing at death's gate, and it is but a brief matter of time until that gate is swung open and that son is ushered in to the presence of death forever. There's only one thing that can deliver this child. As a matter of fact, there's only one thing that can deliver your child. There's only one thing that can deliver your grandchild. There's only one thing that can deliver your future spouse. There's only one thing that can keep the gate of death closed to those who would otherwise willingly walk through that gate. And it is this, beloved. It is the gift of belief. That and that alone. What is belief? What's it mean? What does it mean, that word that John uses nearly 100 times in this gospel alone? It means this. It means to be committed unto. It means to be persuaded of. It means to have confidence in. It means to place all of your trust in. It means to trust in Jesus or God as able to obtain or do something that you can't do on your own. It means, beloved, saving faith. And it is the dividing line between eternal life and eternal death. John 3.36 states, Whosoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Belief is equated with obedience, therefore disbelief is equated with disobedience, which validates the reality that the gospel is not an option. We are commanded to respond to the gospel. And I know that we have the temptation of throwing people into different categories. The beautiful compared to the not-so-beautiful. The wealthy compared to the poor. The intellectual compared to the ignorant. The Bible places all of mankind into one of two categories only. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And belief is the dividing line that separates those two. Separates those two from eternal life or eternal death. Unless there is a belief in Christ alone for our salvation. Unless there is a submission to Christ alone to maintain our salvation. Unless there is a hope in Christ alone to complete our salvation, death or the shadows of death, death lingering around us, it's inevitable. This moment of the official is very relevant to us because it challenges us where we are right now as Christians and it demands that we confront what it is that we really believe about God. This, this situation right here demands that we determine what our level of trust is, what our level of dependence is, what our level of confidence is in the person of Christ. 
Bible tells us that this man is an official. He comes to Christ. The Greek word for official means one belonging to a king or one attached to a kingly court. In other words, this Gentile official is probably in service to Herod Antipas, who is ruling over Galilee after the death of his father, Herod the Great. And I want you to note that we relate to this official much more than we may initially think. He is a man who is seemingly in control of his life. He is a man who seemingly has control of his life. He is a man whose life is seemingly predictable. He gets up, he goes to work, and he does so with a sense of predictability and a sense of ownership over his life, over his work, over his accomplishments, over his successes, and over the lives of his family. He feels that sense of ownership. And we're not that different from Him in the sense that sometimes it takes a moment just like this one. When we think that we're in complete control of our lives, sometimes it takes a moment just like this one to remind us that we are in no control at all. And when I say a moment like this one, I'm referring to a moment just like the one we're reading about. A moment that involves a child. A moment that involves one that is nearest and dearest to us. A moment that involves ourselves. A moment that revolves around physical, perhaps, or definitely spiritual sickness. When we see one that is physically sick, It's at that moment that we realize that we have absolutely no control whatsoever to change the cause or reverse the cause of the sickness. When we see somebody, whether it's a child or a dear loved one, or even if we see sin creeping up in our lives, it's at those moments that we realize that we have no control whatsoever to change or reverse the heart that is manifesting that sickness. And it's in those types of moments that we truly reveal what it is that we believe about God when it's manifesting itself, when sickness of any kind is manifesting itself. Is He still yet an amazing Savior? Or is He simply a religious Figure. Several weeks ago, we were having an elders meeting, and it was around the time that Jason and Amanda had learned that Lily had this spot on her shoulder. And everyone kind of, due to the doctor's leading, assumed the worst. And as Jason is sharing the emotional journey that they had been on as a family, he made a statement, and it's one of those statements that's going to stick in my mind for all of my life. He said this. He said, the worst thing that can happen, the worst thing that the doctor can say is that it's cancer. The very worst thing that the doctor can say is that that is cancer. And I'm thinking, that's a pretty, that's a pretty relevant thing to say. 
It's a pretty relevant thing to hear. And as he's saying this, I do not sense any panic in his voice. Then he goes on to say, and Jesus is Lord over cancer. And so I commend his belief to you because that is relevant to the belief that we're talking about in this passage. That is relevant to the belief that Christ is referring to in this passage. It is a complete dependence on God, completely detached from any dependence on myself. It is a trust in what God has in store for me, period. Not a trust in what God has in store for me until... Not a trust in what God has for me unless, but a trust in what God has in store for me, period. And I submit my life to that. That's belief. Oswald Chambers states, Faith for my deliverance is not faith in God. Faith means whether I am visibly delivered or not I will stick to my belief that God is love. There are some things only learned in a fiery furnace. Now, as we talk about that, I want to express at this point a caution. As we're talking about belief, things like submitting our lives, finding rest and joy in that, I want to offer an immediate caution as we talk about a possible relational problem or a possible relational pattern. And I say possible because I'm not suggesting that it defines all of us, but I do believe it's a pattern that we're prone to fall back into. Let's look at verse 43 again. It says this. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Jesus himself has testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. There isn't much more of a degrading that can take place outside of that statement. There isn't much more of a devaluing that can take place outside of a prophet having no honor. An Old Testament prophet, and Jesus would definitely fall into the role of a prophet because he's indeed prophetic, but an Old Testament prophet is one that heard the voice of God. They took what they heard, they stood before the people and presented what they heard from God to the people, so much so that if the people chose to not believe the words of the prophet or the words that came from the man, it was as if they were disobedient to God Himself. So for a prophet to have no honor really means this man does not hear from God. For a prophet to have no honor means this guy is unbelievable. He can't be believed. Jesus is unbelievable in His hometown of Nazareth, which is in Galilee. If someone were to be interviewed in relation to Jesus, they probably would say something like this. Hey, I knew that, I knew Him when He was a boy. I knew Him when He was knee-high running around with my son. I know His mother, Mary. I know His father, 
Joseph, I know those people and those people are just like me. So I'm sure that you would understand why I'm a bit skeptical about this whole Son of God thing. He's just like us. They're no different. What's that mean to us? Well, I would say that there's a grand chance that we're not defined by that type or that form of unbelief in Christ. But I want to suggest this morning that if we're not laboring, if we have not premeditated to ensure that the Savior is amazing before us, if we have not made it a point to ensure that we are continually amazed by this grand thing called grace. We may not be marked by that type of unbelief, but I want to suggest that we can easily be defined by a type or by a form of indifference because of familiarity of the Christian religion, Christian ideas, Christian principles, rather than being taken aback by the passion and the excitement, and the desire, and the pleasure that accompanies companionship with the most incredible Savior. Listen, beloved, we can be so strong, we can be so passionate about weaving Christian ethics into the fabric of our homes, and even the fabric of the church, that the cross becomes a place that I go to die in order to govern my life and keep my temptations under control, rather than the place that I go to fall in love over and over again with a truly amazing, magnificent, astounding Savior who, as His person, is enough for me. Paul Tripp states, <clears throat> Perhaps there is a moment when the glory of God just doesn't seem all that glorious anymore. Perhaps living in the middle of a theological community, and he's, he's directing this towards leaders, but it's so applicable to every one of us. Perhaps leaving, living in the middle of a theological community begins to dull my excitement and numb my amazement. Perhaps the Bible gets reduced to little more than a theological manual. Perhaps even God Himself becomes more an object of study than the Lord of glory. Perhaps it's all about the dynamic of familiarity. We've spent so much time exegeting the atonement that we stand at the foot of the cross with little weeping and scant rejoicing. We've spent so much time discipling others that we are no longer amazed at the reality of having been chosen to be a disciple of Christ ourselves. We've spent so much time Unpacking the theology of Scripture that we have forgotten the end game of personal holiness. We've spent so much time in strategic local church ministry planning that we've lost the wonder at the sovereign planner who guides our every movement. We've spent so much time meditating on what it means to lead others in worship that we have very little private 
awe. It's all become so regular and so normal that it fails to move us anymore. In fact, there are sad moments when the wonder of grace can barely get our attention in the midst of our busy schedule. How many of us are in need of being revived by the very grace that does not move us like it once did? Beloved, let's be amazed at the Savior. Let's be re-amazed. Let's revisit the cross and look at the wonderful gift that has been given us through this thing called salvation and be amazed at the grace of a holy God. Let's do that by looking at His passion. Let's look in verse 49. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Christ is amazingly different. Christ alone can save. Christ alone is mighty to save. And Christ alone is passionate to save. You remember those sick people that we talked about earlier? The serious sick ones, seriously sick to the point of death. Christ is not only mighty to save them, He is passionate to save them. He is desirous in saving them. He is passionate to save a mother's lost and wayward son. He is passionate to save a woman's abusive husband. He is passionate to save a father's runaway daughter. He's passionate to save your future husband. He's passionate to save your future wife. He's passionate to save your future son and daughter-in-law. Now, I want to point out, what does that mean to you? What does that mean to I? I believe, to myself, I believe that we learn a very valuable lesson as we look at this official in relation to those who are sick, seriously sick to the point of death. Those who are sick that we know, those who are sick that we love, those who are sick that are our neighbors, those who are seriously sick to the point of death that we haven't even met yet, but one day will make their way into our lives. Verse 47, When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Come heal my son. He's at the point of death. Jesus rebukes him. The official does not waver from his plea, but he continues on. And again, instead of engaging in a theological debate with the Savior, instead of defending himself, he immediately goes to the heart of his issue again. The official said to him, verse 49, again, second time, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go. Your son will live. I want to encourage you, beloved, to be taken aback to the fact that God is continually accessible to you. 
He is a high priest serving as a high priest before the Father, making intercession for us night and day. He's making intercession as we lift up our voices to the Lord. I want to encourage you to be taken aback by a holy, mighty God, creator of heaven and earth, who chooses to bend His ear to people like you and me. I want you to be taken aback that God of heaven and earth and be amazed at the fact that He would invite us in and involve us in this glorious holy thing called salvation. I want to encourage you, beloved, to be taken aback and be amazed at the opportunity that we have to intercede on behalf of sinners. Be amazed at that. Be amazed at your role and your opportunity to move the heart of God. First, the official asked. Greek word means that he repeatedly begged Christ to heal his son over and over and over and over and over. He was relentless in his pursuit, knowing that Christ was so accessible. Now, does this mean that Christ gives life to people who are sick, seriously sick to the point of death, specifically solely because of my prayers, not primarily. doesn't mean that at all. God is so passionate to save sinners that He gives life freely to whom He chooses to give life, yet He graciously, sovereignly uses my prayers in order to accomplish His will of giving new life to people who are sick, seriously sick to the point of death. Not because my prayers are needed, but because He loves to hear the prayers of His people. Be amazed at that. Be amazed that God longs to hear the prayers of His people and they matter to Him. So the question is, who is it that is sick around you that you are interceding on their behalf? Who is it around you that is seriously sick? Sick to the point of death. And you're crying out to a holy God on their behalf. Sir, are you interceding for your daughter's husband right now, even though she's only ten? Are you interceding for your son's wife right now, even though he's only five? Are you interceding for those that are unconverted that you know that you encounter on a day-to-day basis? There is a multitude of sick people around us, seriously sick, sick to the point of death. And I'm wondering, could we lack amazement because of our lack of intercession? What are we expecting? I think that one of the reasons that George Mueller was always in amazement of God is because he was always interceding And he was always lifting up prayers to God. And at the end of his life, he would say, there's not one prayer that I ever prayed that God did not answer. He was always continually amazed at who God was as God responded to his pleas and his cries. Charles Spurgeon asks this. Do you say that you have nothing to pray for? What? And again he asks, what? No children unconverted? No friends unsaved? No neighbors who are still in darkness? What? Live in London and not pray for sinners? Then another time he would say, 
Until the gate of hell is shut upon a man, we must not cease to pray for him. And if we see him hugging the very doorpost of damnation, we must go to the mercy seat and beseech the arm of grace to pluck him from his dangerous position. While there is life, there is hope. Do you know why there's hope? There's hope because Jesus is passionate to save sinners. That's why there's hope. While there is life, there is hope. And although the soul is almost overwhelmed with despair, we ourselves must not despair, but rather rouse ourselves to awaken the almighty arm. That's what the official is doing. And what does Jesus do? He responds. Jesus responds. (laughs) Be amazed at that because that is amazing. Be be amazed at His passion that He invites us into. And lastly, briefly, let's be amazed at His purpose. Let's look at verse 51. As He was going down, His servants met Him and told Him that His Son was recovering. So He asked them the hour when He began to get better. And they said to Him yesterday at the seventh hour, about 1 p.m., The fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed. But not only that, all of his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. We're introduced to the process of belief. We're watching it unfold. So the first thing that we do is we become amazed at this grand level of grace that God shows and God gives to a man, first of all, to enable him to believe in the midst of his unbelief. See, he initially believed the word that Jesus spoke to him in verse 50. Jesus said, go, your son will live. Well, we know that he believed that. And he trusted that because what did he immediately do? He left. Go, your son will live. And so the man immediately goes. He immediately lives and he believes. But his belief is based upon the fact that initially, in verse 50, that he has put himself under the authority, he has put himself under the sufficiency, has put himself under the power of the word that Christ initially spoke to him, go, your son will live. And when a man places himself under the authority and the sufficiency and the power of what it is that God has to say, the end result is a deeper, more intimate faith that we see in verse 53. He himself believed. He himself believed. He himself had a deeper, intimate knowledge of who God is, and He in a deeper way gave Himself to the person of Christ. Be taken aback that God can take a Gentile unbeliever, give him faith, and then enable him to believe, and then see the contagiousness and the infection that this man carries back to his family. He is so passionate that his whole household believes. His sick son, perhaps any other children that he had, the servants that met him on the road, His wife, anybody that's in his household, that whole household believed. 
He could not keep from saying to anyone and everyone, do you see that boy right there? He was sick, seriously sick to the point of death. And I cannot help but tell you why he now has great abundant life. I've got to tell you about that. I guess the question is really, how is his story any different from yours? How is his story really that different from any of us? Because we've all had that experience, haven't we? We've all known what it feels like. If we're born again, we know what it means to be on the verge of death, standing at death's gate, knowing that it's just a blink of an eye before we enter into death's presence forever. And then along comes a Savior, and He delivers us from from death, He pulls us away from the entrance of death. He gives us brand new life. He enables us. He causes us to live and to have life. Abundant life. Amazing life. And He does it instantaneously. He does it it in a matter, in a blink of an eye, like a thief in the night. So I want to encourage you to remember. Author John Bloom states, I forgot the gospel. It's one of the most maddening things about living with a truth-distorting sin nature. Let me give you a recent example. A few weeks ago, I said to my wife, I'm feeling gospel fatigue. I'm tired of hearing gospel in just about everything. She looked at me funny. I explained that I was probably just feeling jaded by the commercialization of the gospel, or how it seems like a trendy bandwagon. She didn't buy it. She knows me well. She suggested I probe deeper, and she was right as usual. Here's what I found when I probed. Being so privileged to hear frequent exhortations to apply the gospel, the term's meaning has begun to switch from resting fully on the grace of God to something else I have to learn to do better. We need to get that. I need to learn to be more go- a more gospel-driven husband. I need to learn to be a more gospel-driven parent, a more gospel-driven neighbor, a more gospel-driven employee and boss. I need to do gospel-driven evangelism, lead gospel-driven small groups, and on and on and on. Do you see the irony? He says, my gospel to-do list is just getting longer. Oh, good grief, John. Are you really turning the gospel into law? Have you forgotten again that the gospel is not something you need to do better but a person you need to know better. A person whose grace is completely sufficient for you. He closes and says, the best news in the universe for failing sinners like me is that Christ suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. This is why. And get this that He might bring us to God. 1 Peter 3.18 Because of Jesus, I get God in all His fullness 
forever. The best gift of the cross is not forgiveness. The best gift of the cross is God Himself. And God is not something to do better. He's someone who promises to provide all that I need according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Listen, be amazed at that. Be amazed that it was us. We were the ones, we were the ones that were seriously sick to the point of death and Christ came and gave us everything we need. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me, please. Father, we, we, we desire to come to You, Father, in openness and honesty. And Lord, I just pray that You would, by Your grace, Your mercy, and Your might, God, that You would confront the hearts of Your people. God, if we are no longer amazed at such a Savior, would You just show us where we're failing and falling? Would You begin to spark and reveal to us the joy, the life, the amazement that comes not just from Christian ethics, but a, a, a vibrant relationship with, with the person of God? Father, would you, would you open up our minds and our hearts to that truth above all truths this morning? May we not, may we not view your word as Hebrew words and Greek words that form doctrines and theologies primarily, but your truth by which you want to reveal yourself to us that we would we would fall in love that we would be exposed to the reality that your mercies are fresh and new every morning god so father we would ask that right now you would in in our hearts your spirit touching our spirit god you would lead us to the cross Lead us to that place, God, where we would see the great love that You have had for us. So much so that it seems like at that moment, Father, You loved us more than You loved Your own Son as You gave Him up and poured Your wrath out on Him that we deserved. Take us to that place. Show us that truth. Expose that truth in our hearts, God, that we would in a very real way. Grow in love and affection for You. And so we just submit that request to You. We ask as we ask with, with the reverence of servants, yet with the boldness of children to do that for us, God, for Your glory. And we would ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.